Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Normie Frenia podcast. Today, we are joined by the other host, Tristan. Hello. I want to say hi. I'm eating mini M&Ms. <laughs> and our guest for the night, Noho. Say hello. Hi. Awesome. Uh, I'd you like all to might know our... Noho as the, um, the admin of Noho Tradwife on Instagram. That's right. I'd like to give a thanks to our eternal sponsor, again, uh, Odesian Supply Co. They just got in new merch. They are currently having a war with Kruchiko. What is it called? Kruchiko. Kruchiko. They're sworn enemies, so go buy stuff so that he can set up sandbags in front of his house and buy <laughs> rounds and ammunition for the upcoming war. I think so us, advertising, us advertising Odesian Supply Co. is probably white noise now because I think we've been doing it like 16 weeks in a row because yeah, he's just buying rolled. four weeks at a time. Um, yeah. um, and also thank you to our Patreon people. Uh, still, every episode we shout you out. So thank you to Ivy, Tiana, Emily, and Adam. And If also, you subscribe to our Patreon, you can make us say stuff and you can get in this Discord and do things and help us not go on a rampage, breaking into banks and other such money institutions to steal their cash. Has anyone actually given us anything that we have to say yet? I don't know. Anyway, um, thank you to everyone who has been uh, helping us learn French. That has been a mission of the show now, is to learn French. We. Oui. Oui. Um, <laughs> anyway, enough of that business. We're here to talk about something funny and lighthearted. Uh, we're talking about syncretism, as decided by our guest tonight. Um, what made you choose syncretism as a topic? And follow-up question, did you do the homework that I gave you of listening to the previous episode? Uh, yes, I did. I, I, I really liked it. A hauntology fan is lovely. And uh, I liked the both episodes. I listened to the last two ones. They're very good. I'm excited to see where the where the podcast goes. Um, uh, and I chose syncretism. I don't know. I feel like it's important. Um, it's it's uh, happening a lot on the internet and like in life, and I feel like people don't really understand it. And uh, maybe they could need a little help or something. I yeah, know. when you said you wanted that to be the topic, I think I I straight up said, "Yeah, let me Google that real quick." And then uh, I did, and I said, oh, yeah, that's cool. And here we are now. Is there a specific example of syncretism that comes to your head when uh, you engage in discussion about it? Um, well, for me, I'd say uh, uh, there's there's the most obvious and widespread is probably religious syncretism. Like... Um, you you see things being uh, adopted from one religion into another, or like um, you, there's there's a lot of conflict over whether you know uh, uh, religion where one religion ends and another begins, or like uh, something like let's say like uh, Mormonism or something it is like uh, syncretizing you know Christianity and other sorts of beliefs. Um, and like, uh, you know, there's there's Native American versions of it. Like, you know, it, it's like how, you know, 
most of the world might be Christian, but you go to any one place and the version of Christianity is usually much more local to that place than to um, anywhere. But um, I don't know, I guess that kind of, that's kind of an older syncretism, I guess, but there's uh, definitely newer forms. I don't know. Um, Little known fact, this podcast is recorded from the Planet Colob. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I think it was. I think it was yeah, awesome. This is a Mormon I, podcast. I was kind of. I was kind of like rocking, like in a sci-fi kind of way, with the concept of God being just a guy on another planet, until I learned, um, about him, like his lore, and um, it's like I think they. I think I. It, think it said um, the reason he yeah. is the reason he is in charge of Kolob is because he was so devoutly Mormon. That he got to be the collab guy, and yeah. and then I found out. And everybody gets their own planet when they yeah. Die. Every good Mormon gets a col like it's their own personal collab, which I think and is, they become a god to some of the planet. Ridiculous. Um, what's interesting is is why I I talk about Mormonism as an example of uh, of syncretism is that uh you know that all that lore like collab what kind of a name it doesn't sound quite uh you know, ancient Hebrew, which is usually what those Christian sources are taking stuff from. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's actually from this, like, Egyptian disc that Joseph Smith got, some, like, at this, like, flea market or traveling, like, circuit, some 19th century, like, curio shop kind of deal. <laughs> um, and he had no idea what it meant. Um, and just, like, a, like made up this entire lore based on a translation of it. Now there are like more tons of Mormon archaeologists who are trying to prove it true and shit. But like, I don't know. The whole point is that like, um, you know, uh, one the Mormonism isn't just Christian, you know, and Christians call it not Christian. And like these categories we have of faiths, you know, borrow from each other, and like they're not as separate as we'd like to think of them um and like i don't know i find it interesting like why they borrow from each other like i don't know joseph smith is probably trying to make his you know made up uh, i don't know i hate to besmirch mormonism i might no, have go some ahead fuck mormons literally the last episode tristan went on like a 10 minute riff about why Islam is a Oh, I'm going to pick that back up. I'm calling back to that. Uh, is, Islam is a Islam syncretism. Is very too. Yeah. Uh, Islam is a syncretism of uh, Christianity at the time and um, uh, Middle Eastern pantheism. Yeah, like the, the Kaaba. Um, it's in the Quran that there's like, it's a site of uh, the, the black cube or whatever in the center is pre-Islamic. And it was a site of pilgrimage. And they used to have all these sorts of gods up there um mm -hmm. but then muhammad takes them all down and that's part of why he gets banished from mecca and has to go to medina and mm -hmm. like the the whole plot of the quran um spoiler but, alert like, spoiler alert for anyone reading the quran right now <laughs> um yeah I, I if you watched to season three it gets real spicy but um <laughs> like yeah um the the whole thing is that like it's a way of gaining legitimacy um mm -hmm. among a population is to take something that they're already that they already like and are familiar with um and and like uh 
kind of absorb it into your own uh, pre-existing either religion or ideology or, yeah, you know, your beliefs, basically. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, I think it's very interesting because nowadays, the, like, what people are familiar with is becoming more homogenous through the internet. Um, and, like, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's almost like uh, before you would, like, you know, get their local deity and, and use that to, like, associate that with whatever new religion you were introducing. But now, like, there's, you know, everything spread out across, you know, cyberspace or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think this beautifully also ties to Dan's nostalgia episode. And I think, I, I think that we are, like, entering a weird age of people not wanting uh, the syncretism anymore. Like, uh, we were talking about with Dan, the, the idea that, like, if you had told someone, like, 3,000 years ago the events of the New Testament of the Bible, they would have gone ape shit And just gone ballistic. And now it's like, oh, okay, fine. Um, yeah. And people do not, especially people online, um, do not want familiar anymore. Like, once we are familiar with something for a day, we get mm. tired of it. Yeah, exactly. And the Bible too. Uh, yep. That you know what? Maybe that's why. Maybe. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why we all still love just the Heaven's Gate logo so much. Yeah. Well, I think you know syncretism is what makes a religion good, is because you know religions they don't. One religion doesn't end and another one begins. They all you can find enough similarities in each of them, especially the deeper you go into it. Like with Abraham, Abraham started off worshiping a like B tier, C tier storm God. And because L became such a chief God among Abraham's people that eventually became the Supreme God, like how Baal used to be the Supreme God at one point, L then became the Supreme God. And I think by using syncretism, unknowingly, obviously, it, it has told a very important and fluid story of this God who is growing and, and becoming more closer to what humans are over the last three, four, five thousand years. In that yeah. L was once just a normal storm God, then became the God of the universe, then became you know, a much more compassionate and loving God and then became man, died for a sense, so on. And then 600 years later, then became the God of the Arab people when Muhammad be declared him the sole and only God. And, and then and Joseph Smith said he was on Kolob, you know, whatever. But yeah. And, and speaking of ages, we just brought up ages. Um, each astrological age bleeds into the next one. So whatever predominant stories in each one will be the forerunner to what happens next. So like Abraham started off the age of Aries 4,000 years ago. His story led into the story of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Now we're into a new story now, which again is why everybody wants novelties because we don't have any myths anymore. All of our old myths are dead and we're looking for new ones. Hmm. But I don't know, I think the, the process of, I don't know, you could call it syncretizing when, when things are melded together, like shows us that to a certain extent, there are no new myths. 
Right. In that, like, everything is, you know, uh, you know, dredged up from, or everything is an amalgamation of all that came before it, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, things can be more than the sum of their parts. Like, uh, something that's a combination of a bunch of different things can be worth more than all those things. And that's how, like, um, I don't know, that's how it appears to be that there's, like, innovation and in storytelling, when in reality it's just more and more things being combined over time. Like, yep. um, uh, yeah, that, like, uh, it, for instance, you can find, like, the same myths about, like, say, the flood or or these reoccurring tropes like the hero's journey and things like that. You can find them again and again um in like disparate cultures and different time periods um and it's like i don't know it's kind of amazing to me like i feel like um especially reading ancient stuff you know sometimes it seems so alien but like a lot of the time you know there there's something quintessentially human about all of it that like still shines through even if it's a thousand years old or three thousand years old or like mm-hmm. as old as Janet's, like, you know, the stories people tell, um, you know, never change because I don't know, we're we're all still human in the end. There is nothing new under the sun. That is the logo slogan and logo of this podcast. That's There's true. I feel like we say it we say it probably every three episodes. Uh, I would agree. Not even forcefully, just like it it just becomes the only legitimate response to something said. I feel like it's yeah. like the mantra of every serious philosophical episode. Yep. And and then the and mantra it's... of every of every silly episode is Islam isn't real. <laughs> That's right is the mantra of every silly episode. But the reason why every story is so good is because every story can be related back to some other story. Like if if you want to make the some archaeologists and historians have been like, well, the story of Noah was ripped off the story of um, Gilgamesh. That could be true, or it could just be that the epic of Gilgamesh or the story of Noah is something archetypal, and some guy got high off acacia bark or something and tapped into that and wrote a story about it in two separate locations without ever talking to one another. And I think that there is a... It's called the thousandth monkey effect or the hundredth monkey effect, where if enough of one group gets to doing something, it'll spread like a telephone wire among the same species, even if they're not talking to one another. And like um, one particular example I can think of is that there's an old god of commerce called Mithra in like proto-Indo-Aryan yeah, Persian like the society. cult of Mithras and stuff. Right. The Mithra then became a cult of Mithras just because of cultural trade. But then, hundreds, thousands of years later, became, by way of etymology, the, the eschatological Buddha, Maitreya, that they come from the same root word, meaning friend or benefactor. Two totally different cultures on opposite, well, not really opposites, but opposite quarters of the world that really didn't have as much interaction as you know the Romans and the Persians did, still have a 
a bright and shining, friendly figure who is like a god to them, which it's very cool to see how syncretism doesn't work on just a cultural or information basis, but on a spiritual and mental basis more times than not. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's really interesting, like the connections between like, um, I don't know, like the ancient Greek stuff and the the ancient Indian stuff. And like, I don't know. Um, it's it's uh perplexing how like how do you think the 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 same sort of thing can emerge uh in two different places like i that are like somewhat isolated from each other at least mm -hmm. um like is is it something within like humanity that that tends towards these things or is it like a product of conditions like uh do you think people develop different religions or whatever based on their environment or is it that like i i don't know is it a common ancestry like the indians and the pe the proto-indo-europeans are both from like a root race of like you know the yamnaya culture or whatever right. like on the on the pontic step or something mm -hmm. um like what is it that makes these people like come up with the same thing in a completely different place. Is it just coincidence, you know? Right. And I mean, a lot of like modern new age thinkers will be like, well, the reason why the Mayans and the um, Egyptians and the. Um, they all had tunnels connecting each yeah. other. Under yeah, right, Earth. yeah. Or it's Earth. Like, or it's Hollow aliens. Earth. They, they all, <laughs> yeah, Hollow Earth. They all built pyramids because of the aliens. It's like, okay, well, maybe. But there's also the fact or the chance that they are just filled with aliens and then the aliens. <laughs> right. Everything is aliens if you don't know what it is. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I mean, that's what alien means, right? Like unknown. Right. It used to be used for like a foreigner. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the predominant God or the predominant religion of whatever culture is going to be based off of their own particular culture. That's just how they're cultural story moves that's why we get to take part in this play is because the nature of the universe is mental that anything you put enough effort into will become something more than just you know mental effort so whatever you whatever culture you're in the god of that culture will reflect that culture and it's mm -hmm. the god becomes the culture and when the culture um, dies the god will die as well do you think like how do you count for like i hate to be like a fucking contrarian or whatever but like right. when you're saying like the the god accounts for the culture like i'm just imagining like i don't know christian cultures or whatever where they they or even cultures that appear to be devout but that don't live up to the values of like i don't know like let's say like medieval monarchies that are like very very like patronizing of christians but actually like you know, are are fighting with the Pope and don't right. get like killing peasants and all this stuff or whatever. I think that's a um, very good question. I actually do have an answer for that. And it's because it resides in what the God does of the culture. So like in um Greco Roman times, they didn't really care about debauchery so much. They didn't care about degeneracy. They obviously shunned some of it, but they, they took a large part of joy in doing it. So their gods also did the same thing. 
Bacchus, the god of wine, or Dionysus, the god of wine. They were all drunk. They were all raging. They all had sex all the time. In Christian culture, or Judaic culture, even if we're just go with Abrahamic culture, the god of the Abrahamic culture, while not performing in what the Abrahamic people do, debauchery-wise, will punish them for it. Because the people of that culture hold a deep shame for the things that they do that aren't godly. So they need to perform penance. They believe they might go to hell. They believe they will go to this place or that place because of what they've done. And their own shame, I th if you want to go philosophically, their slave morality pushes them into believing into... <laughs> Yeah, it pushes them into believing in a hell or a heaven and a God that will then justly, justly, who is above them, justly judge who is righteous and who is sinful, and then send those who are sinful, usually people against them, to hell. And that is, again, manifested in American Christianity, where anybody who is unlike you will go to hell. The gays are going to go to hell. The transgenders are going to go to hell. Um, the Democrats, <laughs> the the deep state, Hillary Clinton, all yeah, going to hell. And you know, the, yeah. it manifests in a God who is vengeful and who is also kind because, you know, they're, they, they believe in kindness, they believe in love and peace, at least externally. But internally, they believe in a righteous, they call it, but also just and, you know, hateful, spiteful God toward the people they don't like, but not toward yeah. themselves. But like the the people they don't like is um you know it's not really I I don't know like they'll they'll always say death the gays but never to like the I don't know people who I mean the Bible says like that's the Old Testament and the New Testament says we can get into that later but like um the like they never say death to like you know the the people who don't pay the wages of their workers like you know right. the the people who often who they champion are also like engaging in all this stuff that like they consider debauched and, and, uh, um, I don't know. It, it's, it's like, uh, like, like how, how does, uh, I don't know. How can like the, the being like so, so sinful exist, like coexist with being so devout. Like if, if a, a culture is, um, you know what its religion is so and and also like as for uh for secular cultures like how like what replaces god once um you know that that's like serves as the sort of like lifeblood of a culture like you were saying like when their god dies the culture falls apart um in sort of like modern secular culture has like money or finances or like something else replaced uh god or, or what do you think it is yeah i think those are all good questions so cultures will arrange themselves in one of two ways and they will always oscillate either vertically or horizontally horizontally means that the power and the belief and the culture will spread apart amongst the people horizontally means like a religious uh, structured society where in a horizontally structured society with the pious on top and the debauchery and the and the blasphemers and the atheists on the bottom. 
Right. So those people who are on the top, if they're doing something wrong, like stealing wages from workers or denying entry into, into their country or whatever, whatever that would not be considered loving, they can also consider it as pious because they're in a greater position than the lower class is. Uh, the, not even just Christianity or Abrahamic religion, but the Hindu caste system is the same way. You are literally born into a higher caste because of your past actions in the last life and because God ordained it. So that you are literally given a better life than everybody else. So you have to live that better life while also squishing the people on the lower classes because that's your birthright. Again, that's something that also developed from their own caste system. So the culture will come first. So again, to your point, what about in a society with money-hungry people or atheists? It'll expand in two ways, and we're seeing them both happen at the same time right now. The first is that if you're already a devout person, or at least if you say you're religious, you will Uh, with a friend, if Pentecostal, Pentecostal tongues, and, the, and that was a pretty good time. Did your internet just go out, or did my internet just go out? Yeah, uh, you're cutting out for for me too. Oh, incredibly badly. Let me turn on to my data. Can you hear me fine? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Good. Okay. What did what was the last thing you heard? Go back like two sentences. Okay. Um. So in America. There are two different gods being formed right now at the same time. There's the money god and there's the atheist's god. So the money god is expanding in uh, religion very profusely. And I went to a Pentecostal church a few years ago with a friend of mine. And the service was fine. It was happy. It was healthy. And I was actually having a pretty good time. It felt like more like a concert than anything, but I still liked it. They they were worshiping and I felt really in the spirit and all that. But the pastor went up and he said, now we're going to say the, I don't know, like the uh, wealth prayer. And like my heart sunk. I'm like, what the hell is this guy talking about? And he starts going on about how God is going to give you wealth if you will just put your wealth somewhere else, like the church. And that's where the televangelists come in. And they say, sow your yeah. seed. And, and they say, right, God is ordaining this, right? Because money is the God now. So God is ordaining that you give me money. Or the New Agers. The New Agers will say, well, if you manifest, if you believe in source, if you believe in the universe, you're going to get a lot of money. And so people, the priestly cl class becomes a money-hungry, grubbing guru society where they say, I'm more spiritually enlightened than you. Give me money. That's yeah, why, um, like, um, who's that one guy? He's like, the guy with a big old white beard, and he's, he's a Hindu guru, but he's, his name is Sadguru. He has like three Rolls Royces. He doesn't know anything about the Bhagavad Gita or the Mahabharata. He doesn't know anything about his own religion. But he'll rake in that money. And he'll say, well, you need to be this and you need to manifest. Um, the same thing uh, occurred in like um, ancient Greece with like, that's that's where the, the term like philosopher specifically meant somebody who taught and wasn't paid as opposed to what they called like a sophist, which right. was somebody who's paid who, who who people paid oftentimes like a lifetime's wage uh, like lifetime's wage for somebody and they'd have to go into debt to be paid to to pay like 
this sophist to teach them how to live or to right. teach them like um you know some sort of true meaning of life um yeah. and the movement of philosophy like of like plato and socrates in the academy and stuff like that was a specifically a reaction to that and to to basically and that's why socrates was put on trial partially because he was corrupting the people of Athens and the youth or whatever. He's corrupting the youth, yeah. Yeah, with knowledge that was usually reserved for people who would have to pay, like, an exorbitant sum to a sophist to learn. Right. And the second god, the atheist's god, usually the atheist's god was always themselves. So going back to, like, humanism and philosophy, if we look at this last age, the age of Jesus, you can split it in two right around the year like 10, 1000 to 1054. 1054 was the first schism of the church. We're talking about the age of Pisces. We're talking about two fish. So one fish will rule the first half, one fish rules the second half. So if we're looking at the second half of the age, the last thousand years, this last age was ruled by humanism, the advent of sciences, the advent of philosophy, the advent of enlightenment. So the atheist's God, if he doesn't actually find God, will always be himself. Well, now we're in a point where people are very self-loathing. Everybody feels like they are picked on and oppressed and dejected, and they're performing in these Olympics to be more and more dejected. So that the ego is no longer really the God of this age. The God of this coming age is going to be technology, because that's what we're building now. For the last 20, 30 years, our our focus has been toward the wonders of electronics and technology. If you wanted information, let me go back to the sophists and the, and the philosophers. If you wanted information back a thousand, two thousand, three thousand years ago, you went to a priest, you went to a seer, you went to a shaman, you went to someone who knew something. Now, our shamans and our priests and everybody who knows is Google or Bing, if you're psychopathic or whatever but your your search engine is now your priest and so i, I forgot the guy peter peter something the guy who made google he has been working on for like the past 30 years he's been working on uh, a deep mind which is google's god that he's literally making a god out of ai and that's what people are expecting now because they want to put their hopes into technology the technology will give us the answers. It gives us comfort. It you gives us happiness. Too, Alex because, Jones like, talked about that so long ago. To, right. to drop uh, like society, like like algorithm-driven decision-makings for government or whatever, I, I feel mean, like is the goal of the AI. I would go so far to say we're already there because all of our information that we get now, all the memes we look at, everything that we ingest now on our phones is driven by those algorithms. And the algorithm is it 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 views us very objectively. They don't it doesn't care, obviously. It doesn't care if you're a right wing extremist, it doesn't care if you're a furry. It will put you into a pocket that you it thinks that you belong in. And it will continue to make you echo yourself until you become the embodiment of that thing. And it it, it breeds uh, extremists. I mean, we covered that like months ago back in like a third episode, this exact topic. But, but now it's gotten worse to a point where AI will eventually rule our lives. I mean, you folk who live in society, I'm going to be out in the woods, but <laughs> <laughs> to the people who are still living here, 
if you want to talk like if you want to talk like fearful beast system like mark of the beast if you want to if you want to be like a 40 year old mom on facebook and talk about the mark of the beast if there is a mark of the beast it will be something involving ai either either proving that you're human or proving that you are feel and you have fealty to that ai god now will it be worshiped like a god no of course not there's the alternate idea that we've already all accepted our marks by like taking part in the internet or whatever yeah i mean it's a point you can make but or like the, there were people I, back I don't in really the day that. Where like the credit card was the mark of the beast that like right you know it's all this thing you would need to use that's that's how revelations describes it is like this thing you would need to use to um be able to to buy anything anywhere and um, you're you're very right and i i we talked about it back tristan back in the dan episode i believe about nostalgia that i believe that revelation tells itself in cycles and it never ends it's a yes. story of people always searching for the world to end and that the mark of the beast is also every currency that's ever ever existed oh what do you mean we have to go to paperback currency instead of gold this is literally the mark of the beast and they actually did think that back when when we went from like uh, gold back to just paperback is very anti um i don't know like there's all these admonishments Jesus gives to like give up your possessions and to like I don't know that that like uh, you know the meek shall inherit the earth and um, you know that everybody the, the apostles should have all things in common like there's yeah. all these admonishments against currency and like for debt forgiveness and stuff like that um, like mm -hmm. the the jubilee is uh, is what they would have to like wipe debt so mm -hmm. I don't know I I feel like this idea of currency itself being the mark of the beast is is very interesting because like i don't know it's kind of the embodiment of of greed and it's like i don't know have you ever seen like they live the the movie yeah yeah With like sunglasses. you know when he has the glasses on and he looks at a dollar bill hmm. um it says this is your god yeah um and I don't know. I, I feel like that's what you're talking about. Like the two gods. There's the, like the god of money or whatever. Um, and it's true. It, it is true. Because what, what, is, what does he say? Do not think of the things of tomorrow. Focus on the things of today and, and put faith that the things of tomorrow will be figured out. And also that the son of man has no home. Or that um, does, does your father in heaven not care more for you than these birds who live in the sky and do not want for anything but there's a very powerful message of not wanting for things and if you do want for them look to god for them and yeah money is the exact opposite of that it, it is the polar opposite of that because now if we want something we don't we don't have time to pray or meditate anymore because we're working we don't have time to go and be spiritually sound we have to work and be around people and put on a mask and do all these things which is like service. It's like groveling before God. Work is like groveling. It's like penance to get what you want from this God, and the God is then money, and then Especially money can the get you whatever you want. And the more you worship this God, the more you work, the more the more that you get. The more greed that you have, which is like the I guess the opposite of fealty and piety. The more greed you have, the more that you receive. And I I believe that. There is a, uh, I don't know, entropy to 
uh, greed into money, that if you give up everything and you live meekly and you have no possessions, you are neither living like a slave and you're not living like a king. You're living somewhere in the middle. You're living peacefully without want. If you try to live like a king, it is a necessity that there must be slaves. If you want to create a utopian, perfect society with a clean energy and all these things, there are going to be people in sweatshops making your clothes, and there are going to be people who are mining your lithium, and that is not fair to them. And the correct assumption is to give up those things you're trying to achieve for the sake of the lives of the people you're putting under your foot. And so, yeah, being a acolyte of money, being a apostle of money, is a very sinful and antithetical thing to God, because you are, by proxy of just having money, you are taking something from someone else, even if you don't know them. You must be taking something from someone else. There's actually a thought experiment done in the 70s. I forgot the guy's name. But he says, there are usually two different obligatory things you can do. Say you go to a, a store and they say, do you want to add an extra dollar for UNICEF? You would say, well, that's not obligatory. That's uh, super obligatory. I don't have to, but I can if I want. It makes me a good person if I do, but I'm not a bad person if I don't. The guy says, it's actually the, it's not true at all. You are a bad person if you don't, because you have the ability to help someone out, but you're choosing not to for the sake of your own money. And I believe that. I think it's true. And it's an uncomfortable truth we have to face if we're going to have money and have luxuries and have these things. That just the very process of owning things and the process of buying things with extra money that we don't need is stealing food out of someone else's mouth. Yeah. And to that extent, like, you know, how many people are we letting die via, you know, starvation, poverty, and all these things that are fixable with the resources we have to to a large extent um just through excess like our own excesses um uh but like with that kind of attitude like every person is to a certain extent responsible for like what amounts to genocide like i don't know if you can carry through that logic of like I, i mean it's a really interesting question is like is is killing somebody the same as letting them die? Um, yeah. Oh, the trolley problem is back. It all comes <laughs> back to yeah. that. Nothing new under the trolley problem, but it's like I don't know. It's also the problem of like it's, it's how Turkey denies the Armenian genocide too, or whatever. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, I think the reason why I, I have a it's not so backed by anything. Desert, you know, they didn't get. They're not <laughs> shooting. Starving. I, I think the reason why Western or just affluent societies focuses on work and how they have a lot of money, a lot of culture, and not culture, a lot of comfort, I mean, the reason why they're so pitifully sad is not because there's some, you know, schism between having too much and not having enough soul or whatever, or it's like I have so much stuff that I just don't have time for myself and I'm so sad. It's not that. People here, country, in affluent Western countries, in affluent Asian countries. The reason why they're so sad is because they are unknowingly and unwittingly steeped in cognitive dissonance because of the fact that they are making people suffer 
and they don't know it. But unconsciously, they're paying the toll of that. And I believe the fact that people are so obsessed with money, the reason why people are so obsessed with jobs now is because they are subconsciously trying to fight against that cognitive dissonance of, yes, I do love these things, and no, I don't really want to hurt people. I want to be a good person. But there's a third thing that says, well, you have these nice things because you're hurting people. And the only way to get rid of that cognitive dissonance is to stop hurting people and give up your things, which you can make the same case for eating meat, driving to the store, chopping down a tree, pulling roots out of the ground. You might want something, but does the thing but, you're taking from it want it as well? Yeah, the the problem is with those arguments is like, I don't know, I'm hearing a, a, a twinge of like the, you know, the, the kind of rhetoric that uh, uh, World Economic Forum type people use or whatever. Like, I, I feel like oftentimes the, the idea of like this sort of uh, responsibility for letting bad things happen or like being complacent in like the cognitive dissonance you're saying of like enjoying something but being complacent in something bad even that you don't have to see that happens somewhere else like that those kind of arguments are often used by the people who are actually doing the bad things I like agree. like like uh the the very industries that are doing the polluting will point back at people and say, like, well, it's your carbon footprint. You're the one who's, you know, you're our customers. You're the one hmm. who's giving us money to do this yeah. in the first place. And, I mean, they have, it, it, it's somewhat true, but I feel like, I don't know, um, the, the, the people who are, who are letting it happen aren't the root of the problem. Yeah. Uh, yes, that is very true. And it's, I just put a meme in the, the channel but it's is it true to say you should own nothing and be happy yes but it's be, you have to look at whose mouth is saying it if it's coming out of the mouth of somebody who's rich and powerful then don't listen to them they're trying to put you under their foot but if it's coming from somebody like jesus then yeah listen to them because they're also not being hypocritical and it's a matter of hypocrisy yeah if you're listening to a hypocrite they're just trying to get you into more cognitive dissonance so that you find something new to harp over and become a savior for. It's why people, you know, now they are <laughs> drinking from paper straws and, and drinking out of cardboard cups and carrying around little metal straws around because they're saving the universe by doing that. When I'm wittingly, you know, that paper straw was fashioned by some Indian kid or a Bangladeshi kid or a Chinese kid in some factory. It's because they don't really care, obviously. They, they don't want to look away from the cognitive dissonance. But any way to alleviate that cognitive dissonance, even if they don't look at it, helps them. And literally, the only way to get away from it is to go to the logical extreme and just escape it. Or you have to face it and deal with the cognitive dissonance of having those two separate, I want to do good things, but I also want, I also want things. And if, if somebody like you know, Klaus Schwab says you will own nothing and be happy that means that he wants to put you in a pod where you still have to deal with the cognitive dissonance but you don't actually get the benefit of being an ascetic at giving up things so you have to give up everything but you still have to take from people 
So you don't get anything. You're just stealing out of, out of people's mouths. Versus mm-hmm. at the other end, you will know you will own nothing. Be happy means go live in the woods, go eat berries, you know, meditate and and be happy. Get rid of everything you had. Get rid of everything that you're trying to hold on to. That way, you'll actually be free. You won't have any cognitive dissonance if you're not actually killing people. But yeah, that escape mm-hmm. out of cognitive dissonance does have a very uh, scary end to it because at what, at what point do you stop giving things up? At what point do you just breathe air and nothing else? At what point do you just die yeah. to just not take other from other people's? You know, well, so you, have to, you have to balance. I, you have to find a middle ground. It's interesting you were talking about the ages of astrology before, and I was wondering like the the uh, how that fits into like the Hindu ages, uh, or they're also in Jainism and, and to a lesser extent certain types of Buddhism, like the Kali Yuga or whatever. That's um right. that age is the present one we're in, and the previous ones were like ones where humans didn't lived much longer and didn't need to destroy other life forms. Right. to be that plants or animals or whatever to survive and obviously there's still some like crazy people out there who are like breatharians who believe we can return to that and they're like are often westerners who appropriate sections of these beliefs and then like i'm gonna sound crazy but I, th- I think they're on to something i'm gonna try it out <laughs> <laughs> that's what a new diet is is just you know just fresh air is all you need um and and of course like look staring directly at the sun like humans can photosynthesize just you know that, not tell. that the government just keep big sunscreen or whatever um but mm-hmm. like uh yeah I, I don't know it it's um it, it's kind of impossible to fully divorce yourself from cuz I, I i've seen I don't know how much to trust. Uh, I, I, I've read a study that said that most scientific studies are false. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I have also read a study that like, plants have like means of, well, obviously there's means of communication with the, like through mushroom uh, mycelial networks, but they mm-hmm. also can like scream apparently, like they, yeah feel some sort of pain and they have stimuli when they're hurt and things like that um like so and you know early like buddhists and jainists implicitly knew this thousands of years ago somehow or or not thousands of years ago but i'm exaggerating that it was a long time ago it's Um, thousands yeah you you are right um yeah yeah um but uh like they implicitly knew this and they knew about microorganisms too like uh yeah. there's still this Jainist tradition where you sweep the floor for micro for these like microbes before you walk um mm-hmm. like i don't know it, they they essentially believe that every time you stay, take a step you're killing something that feels pain and yeah. i don't know like certain scientific evidence could back that up but like I don't know. People have different views on the matter. I, I don't know what to believe. I, I'm still uh, researching stuff myself. Right. But like, well, I, um, I think the same consciousness that's in us is also in water, in plants, and such like that. Like, there is a study done yeah, on plants like, or so water. Like, live without that cognitive dissonance of we're benefiting from something else being hurt. Right. So. It has to be 
everything you do has to be very reverent, and you also can't be obsessed with the idea of killing things. Like you can't be afraid of it. It has to yeah. be. I will. Suffering is an integral part of the world because everything that suffers and dies doesn't die permanently. Their soul is going to continue living. That's something you also have to understand before yeah, you do it. I don't know. I believe in reincarnation, like that. When we die, even I don't know if we have. May, maybe we have a soul. Maybe it goes somewhere. Um, but like concretely, we know that like your body will be eaten by animals that will, and it will use those animals will use your body to like fuel themselves and essentially continue living and they'll get yeah. eaten by something else that will use it to like survive and like the nutrients that will make up the like worm that eats you might be eaten by a bird and will become the bone of an animal or something or right. you know like uh the matter nothing's created or destroyed right mm-hmm. um so uh you survive in terms of that like, you know, we're still drinking the same water that the dinosaurs drank or whatever. Right. Like, in, in that, in that um, you know, your essence is passed on to other living things. Yeah. Suffering but, is an integral part of the world. It, it, is, it is a necessary thing that we yeah, have to Yeah, I think we're profoundly alienated from... from <laughs> this is going to sound terrible, but I think we're... Pro- hum- Modern day people are profoundly alienated from like death and murder, and like not murder in like the tr- like sense of killing other humans, but like in terms of that you have to, uh, or, or just in terms of the suffering that comes with life, like we've outsourced it to factory farms or to you know sweatshops in other countries, like mm-hmm. and the goal is uh, uh, the goal was to make everything as convenient as possible and easy for a certain portion of the world, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, a certain section of the population. Um, yeah. And even those people are unhappy because, like, and often more unhappy because, um, you know, they they not only have to live with that cognitive dissonance you're talking about, but, like, they also have no real struggle or anything to yeah. define their lives. They're too easy. Very true. Um like I was saying the the same consciousness that's that's in us is also in everything else. So like a study was done on um crystalline structures in, in ice. And they noticed that when you are freezing water and the words that you are saying to the water are happy oh, yeah. and joyous yeah. and filled with love, Maybe. they will they will form crystalline, perfect structures. But if you are rude, crass, and ugly toward it, it will also re- reject it and start to form ugly crystals. And I believe that wholeheartedly because what we say and what we do and the feeling that we give to other people influences them directly. So what you it's have like to do is that everything you do must be filled with love it has to be filled with happiness, filled with joy. So that even if you hurt something, the thing will innately, inertly know that you did not mean to hurt it. Things just happen. A fruit has to be what you eat because the fruit is not, it's not conscious of itself. Even a plant is sort of conscious to an extent. Like you said, it can scream and everything. 
So what do you do? You eat what it tries to get rid of. It, it wants to reproduce, so it lets go of fruit. You eat the fruit. Leaves can fall from trees naturally, so you eat the leaves from trees. Do you eat the roots? No, because that'll kill the plant. Do you um, eat animals? No. Do you eat what they make? No, because that also it, you're taking from them. You can make any argument towards or against it, but what you should be focusing on is doing the least harm emitting the most amount of love and the least amount of suffering toward other people. And yeah, the factory farming thing, it definitely fuels cognitive dissonance. It, it has breeded a few generations of people who believe that meat just grows on trees or something and it gets plucked by a farmer. When in reality, you know, even the milk you drink comes from factories of cows that are beaten and raped so that they can give birth, so that they can continue to produce milk. Cows that aren't pregnant don't produce milk. I'd like to make everybody known that. They have to be forcefully inseminated so that they can produce milk so that when their baby is eventually born, the baby is just killed or sold off or given to a meat factory. And yeah, but at the there's same a horrific time, side to that that is not shown because the, obviously nobody wants to see that. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, as all that horrific stuff is happening, what would happen if, like, you know, say we let these cows free? Yeah, like the, <laughs> what the, the hell biomass, are we gonna do that? The biomass of cows that we that exists on Earth mm -hmm. is purely due to human intervention, yeah. and, and like, the cow as a species is like, I don't know, it is almost bred like by it is bred by humanity, like mm -hmm. to to become something completely different from what it once was. Um, yeah. Even chickens and, have done and, that like the last hundred years. Chickens used to be half the size, but they selectively bred chickens to be fatter. They're like a and, trillion and chickens on the planet too, and they're all used for meat. Certain age too, because they get too fat, their like legs give out. And shit. Yeah, it's, um, like, it, it's incredibly fucked up. But the thing is, is like, should we like? What do we do? The conundrum is like, if do we let them free and like? They'll probably starve to death or, like, you know, ruin the biosphere or something. Like, they would probably eat everything like a plague or some shit. Definitely. Um, and, and, like, um, I don't know. It, it's just, like, what do you do? Do you just, like, is there be. a them? Like, that would be even more horrific, you know, to do yeah. it all at once. That. Like, Part of the... I, Part of the part the of escaping, is, yeah. Part of escaping cognitive dissonance is also not trying to enforce your will on others. You have to accept the fact that these people are going to continue killing and eating the cows, and you have to hope that if you want to enact change, it has to be slow and gradual. That nature will eventually work itself out. The culture will change with nature, and as time goes on, under a few hundred years, people will say, for example, people will slowly stop eating the meat. Less and less cows be born, they won't mass produce as much, and eventually the population will diminish over time. But yeah, if you go on like some yeah. fascist rampage, an eco-fascist rampage, and like yeah, free all the cows, we're gonna be <laughs> we're gonna be killed. All the cows are gonna roll all over us. We're gonna eat all of our plants. We're gonna have a cow in every backyard. We're gonna have a, two chickens in every front yard. It's not gonna work, obviously. So you have to also accept the will that people are going to do what they want. They're going to enact suffering. And ultimately, yeah. it's okay. So you have to do what you know on your part is correct. Help other people you know, 
be as freely loving as you can, even to the people who are causing suffering, because ultimately you can't change all of it. It's part of a greater story. You aren't meant to change people's wills like that. If it is meant that those wills are going to change, they'll change. Love wins. That's, that's interesting because that's like kind of a profoundly anti-political message or whatever. Like politics, politics is gay real. and retarded. Yeah, politics gay and retarded. Love wins. Love fucking wins. Politics is yeah. gay and retarded. It's all based on belief. Whatever you believe mm. in is what is what's created. If you believe that you know Donald Trump is the second coming of Christ, boy is going to get a halo on his head soon enough. It's just, it's a matter of belief. And people, the only reason why politicians even exist is because people have enough belief in the system. And that has happened over culture and culture. Belief in the system changes. This too is that like people don't really have faith in themselves or in anything else. Like they're, they're so often like idols or something or like people are just, uh, I don't know. They're, they're in the same way that they outsource like the killing of animals to like, you know, uh, um, the slaughterhouses, they outsource the killing of people and, like, beating of people, imprisoning yeah. of people, whatever, to the state and to politicians. Like, yeah. they exist to do basically the dirty work for, for you know, people who are too, like, I don't know, for people who don't want to do it themselves. That's very true. And, and, like, oftentimes, like, anarchistic type of people, I think are people who want to take the state's violence into their own hands or whatever. Um, but, like, at the same time, um, you know, there's some, you know, basic uh, agreement that some level of preparedness for violence, at least, is needed in any sort of society. And I think when whenever you're going to have, like, the idea that you need to be prepared for violence on a mass scale, th then you're going to have, um, you know, people who the, 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 like, population will select to do these things. And those people will, like, probably abuse their power and stuff. But at the same time, people can't be, most people can't be arsed to, like, you know, deal with the fucking statecraft or whatever. Like, yeah. I don't know. It, it's it's a conundrum, all right. But like, uh, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think like if politicians were eliminated as a whole, like there's still shit that like you know we need to do as a group? Like, I mean, po politician like, is <clears throat> such like a like a ritualistic title. It doesn't it doesn't hmm. come with any like skill set that is unique to that name. Yeah. It's like a so it's it's like, like a it's like a name tag instead of politicians or like what is it you know in the in the grand scheme of things everyone is a politician so no one is a politician we're all in some way yep. part of yeah. the chain of command that where we sort of trade hands a little bit yeah and and like like if all if like you can never get rid of the title or the position of politician. It's all just about what you give what we consider a politician authority over and who you you being the mass of people that this politician is overseeing. Like the politicians that are in power are always a reflection 
of the people. Yeah. Um, even if it's like inversely, like right now in America and here in the States, uh, politicians are a reflection of our own ignorance to what people will do with power when it is given to them. Yeah. And it's kind of the same for us. We, as citizens, have a lot of power. We just don't know what to do with it. But in some places where they have like a truly brutal dictatorship, um, the government is sort of this inverse reflection of the population where the population is sort of weak and cowardly. And that's kind of what gives this dictator their authority. Right. Um, I guess you could say the same thing about us right now, in a way. Except the dictator is sort of a mass of people. But yeah, you can never. If if you have, if you have political beliefs, it's because you're trying to live vicariously through the state in some way. Even if you're an anarchist, yeah, yes. If 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 you're a fascist or a communist, right? You're not saying you're a fascist or a communist because you want to be in a bread line. It's because you want to be Heinrich Himmler, or you want to be you know Stalin. You want to be at the top because you want to live vicariously through them. So I think part of like. If you're going to live a different life to a normal person, you have to be. I have to interject there Uh, from personal experience uh, with all sorts of fucking political, I don't know, dumbasses of all of all stripes. Mm. um, Like I don't know. Oftentimes they don't necessarily want to be. Oh, psychologically, uh, they do. When they picture like this utopian vision, they have. They picture themselves as head of state in this idea that like they have sculpted this reality because it's in their head. Obviously, in real in real life, oftentimes they're like sick, often sycophantic servants for a dead person, and they want to be like their soldier or like their like they want to be an extension of that rather than. um, And I think it's almost that's almost worse than like being like a lust for power of wanting to put yourself at the head of a government um, mm-hmm. is like, there's people who like, you know, w- will never be able to reach power. Like they do this in real life politics. We'll never be able to reach power and will still be like sycophantically serving a like political side that might even hate them. Like, I don't know. There was, yeah. I was reading about how there was, um, speaking of syncretism, I guess there was like, uh, a council of um uh, of like they called them the national like german jews or whatever in the 30s during the weimar republic that supported first like the monarchist right-wing parties and then the nazis but they were like a, a council of like basically german jews um and like you know th- they they sycophantically supported like the, the Nazi government up until they were arrested, basically. Right. Um, and there's so much, like, you can find so many examples like that, like, where they they know they have no chance to be the person in charge. Um, and, you know, no, they, they just want to, to it, it's a sort of, like, I, I don't know, uh, like, Camus calls it, like, a philosophical suicide to yeah. to a greater idea, like, um they they want to abdicate responsibility to some great project or something um and like to them the idea of running the state would be like a cause of anxiety and like it's because they don't know what to do with their lives basically that they they want to find some like 
cause that can consume them. And I think that's why you see it like radicalism really like become a mass movement in times of desperation rather than um or at least historically. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if you ever want to get out of politics, it also is very important that you appreciate it for what it is. Part of the story, part of the play of life is that people are going to they're going to be kings and they're going to be servants. And you know, if you want to talk about past lives and everything, these things will switch. You'll become a king, you'll become a servant, and so on. But more importantly, so there are going like, to be great uh, empires and there are going to be terrible empires. What's that? Do you, uh, sorry to interrupt. Um, uh, but do you think hierarchy is like a necessity in like the way humans organize? Like, it's, it's not. Okay. Ne- it's not just a necessity. It's literally an inevitability. Yeah, yeah, and it's a good inevitability because it breeds great stories out of it. There are great conquerors that we know of because of terrible empires. And that's the reason why there are great conquerors because of terrible empires, great founding fathers because of bad empires. Napoleon exists. Uh, Alexander the Great exists just because he said, "You know what my father did? I'm going to do even better than my father." That's in, awesome. In the, that in the same bad. way that more importantly, like, like that that, that you know, it's somebody who has access to who who orders it to be written down, right? Um. Sorry to interrupt. In the same way that there is like light and dark, there's love and hate, uh, you know, sin and perfection. Uh, as long as we continue to live in an imperfect world, we will never have like what you'd call egalitarianism. Someone will always slightly, at least slightly be above someone else and then someone slightly below them. Mm-hmm. And that will scale in intensity uh, forever. Yeah. It's, it's, imp- uh, but the easiest way to both acknowledge and appreciate that and simultaneously try to separate yourself from politics is to realize that, um, a small piece of, or everyone is everyone else. Like, yeah, the, uh, you are simultaneously, um, one with Christ and one with Hitler you you and then vice versa like you like it's all it's me uh, big it's all a, yes I'm we, are all, we are all I'm, we are I'm all Hitler's we, we, we are all I'm jesus God. we're all jesus and we're all hitler forever i'm hitler's um, top jesus um, you're right you know however you need to think about that like you in even in your political opponents insert anything here yeah. it's like in in it, all of your op- you you I'm and your opponents of, are like, all one in, like, kind of phenomenon of, of meeting you i hate to say it but it's kind of like the literally me kind of phenomenon of when people say literally me to yes you, know, you are literally yes, them you are literally well, them and so as, as sooner everyone realizes that they are both their best friend and their worst enemy um, I think the sooner we might see that, uh, a sort of maybe compromise, I don't yep. know. It's, it's, it's kind of maybe the greatest historical example of people realizing this, uh, en masse is probably like the world war one Christmas, uh, armistice <laughs> when, um, 
And I guess like really, really any example that you might be able to pull out of like Storm of Steel um, is just when, despite the fact that they were at war with each other, they realized that they are each other's enemies in this war, but they were also all just dudes being guys or whatever. And so mm -hmm. they played soccer and then they went right back to killing each other because that was the story. That was what that was what had to happen for them, I guess. And like in a yeah. lot, a lot of several times in like um, All Quiet on the Western Front and Storm of Steel, uh, they just, despite being at war, just hang out with each other. Like uh, probably like one of my favorite parts of Storm of Steel is when uh, like a British group of soldiers and then like Ernst Jünger's group of soldiers, they were all just chilling. Not this was not during a Christmas truce. They were just hanging out with each other, and then a British guy shot at a German guy, and the Brit the other British guys reprimanded him for doing this. Yeah, but then they went. They all went right back to war with each other. I'm going to bring up the the most pertinent story for this exact common uh, conversation, and it is the Mahabharata. It is the Indian epic which stars Krishna, and it is a story of the. Um, the, the two brotherly tribes, the Pandavas and the, the Karaivas, I believe. It's something that starts with a K. And they are brotherly tribes of like hundreds of thousands, millions of people. And they get into a war just because of the fact that one of the sides, the Pandavas, lost in a dice game. And the whole story revolves around at least the part, the Bhagavad Gita, which is when Krishna is speaking to Arjuna right as the war is about to begin, is Arjuna is caught in this worldly fear. He's like, my my brothers and my, my fathers and my teachers are over on that side. They're my family. I don't want to kill them. And Krishna has to say, this is all a play that I am putting on. You, them, your armies, they want to die because they want to perceive my story. I am the author of this. They've already died. Just play your part. In so many words, obviously, I mean, it's like a five, 10,000 word epic, but effectively, that's what he says. He says, This is my story. Play your part. You have no enemies. You have no friends. You have no teachers. You are all just playing a part. You are not good or evil. You all must die in this fight because I said so. And yeah, to some people, it's like, Oh my God, it's horrific. It's terrible. But in a cosmic sense, yeah, he's completely right. There are no good kingdoms. There are no bad kingdoms. There are no evil dictators. There are no uh, benevolent kings. Everyone is the same, and they're all playing a role. And they will play other roles. They will die and be reborn if they so choose, in a new body and live a new role. And that is why the world is so perfect and why it has so many imperfections, quote-unquote, is because those things must exist for a story to take place. You don't just watch a story or movie for an hour and a half of, of a guy sitting under a tree or something. You, you watch a movie filled with highs and lows yeah. and, and the climax and a resolution. Those things what make a good story, and that's why we have suffering and why we have joy in this world are for those reasons. Oh. Yeah. So, is that what you're saying? What's up? So, is like 
Jeff, soy, <laughs> not so. Joy and suffering. I was about to say soy and suffering. Um, <laughs> soy you know, and suffering. <laughs> do, do they balance each other out? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, not only do they balance your, out, they're the same. Yeah. They're yeah. literally the same experience. It, it, it's a matter of perception because ultimately, isn't that you, and to a certain right. extent, right? Yeah. Like, you like, ultimately are not your mind. You aren't the perceiving thing that is reacting to your fears, reacting. That thing that is reacting is not you. You're the thing that's looking at it. So ultimately, suffering, pain, joy, those things pass away and you forget them. But what remains is the experience. And the, experiments, the experience tells a story. And the story is what is good. So ultimately, there's only good. Because even if you suffer, and this goes to anybody listening, if you suffer, if you feel pain, if you are heartbroken, you will heal from it. Even if you die, your soul will move on. Especially if you die. Heaven, especially, especially when you die. When your soul moves on, the imprint that your mind has on your body, when your soul leaves your body after death, which is a looked at phenomenon by astral projectors, near-death experiencers, it is a damn near scientific fact that you have a soul and it is what is below the body, I guess. When you leave your body, you will leave all your trauma, all your fear, all your pain behind. What will remain after you heal from it is what a good story that was. Now, people who have near-death experiences, when they die, they all have the same trope of getting the life review. And they don't cringe at all the times they did negative things. They don't feel sad every time they were hurt. They all think, wow, I lived that life. How cool. You don't think that now, because if you did, you would be a terrible actor. It's like a, it's like a, I don't know, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio went on set, and his name was Leonardo DiCaprio, and he talked like Leonardo DiCaprio in every one of his roles. That's why The Rock is a terrible actor, because it's just, The Rock <laughs> is The Rock in every role. Again, if you were just a, a, a Buddha in every lifetime, and you had no suffering, and you were perfect from death and perfect until birth, and, and, and you were just the same thing, and you sat under a Bodhi tree for 83 years or whatever, and you died, you'd be the most boring human being on the planet. But because you get to suffer, you get to suffer. You have the privilege of suffering is why you get to live such a cool life. You don't know it now, but you were living an awesomely cool life. Even if you're going through trauma, going through heartbreak, being abused, those things are bad in the moment. But you will heal from them and you will escape them. It is your it is your birthright to escape your suffering, but also be able to enjoy it eventually. And to put the perfect cap on both that point and this episode, that is what makes Jesus the greatest of them all, is that he suffered all of the suffering, making him the greatest actor in this movie. Hey, yep, that's why the whole age is defined by him. That's right. Because he was a great actor. Jesus, greatest actor ever. And that's why Willem Dafoe got to play him in a movie. <laughs> anyway, right. thanks, thanks everybody for listening. Um, thank you, Noho, for being on the show. Um, no, go follow um, Noho Tradwife on Instagram. And also go give us your money and go give Odizian Supply Co. your money. Um, okay, good night, everybody.